again to Core Ideas, the podcast where we delve into all things related to lake sediments. My name is Adam Jaziorski, and I'm joined as always by my good friend, Josh Steenbond. Hey, what's up? Not too much. Um, and today, it's kind of a big one, and in many ways, a sad um, and not exactly an uplifting episode plan, because we're going to round out our arc on topical paleolimnology with an episode dedicated to really what is the most topical topics of our time. Oh, no. Oh, no. Not not COVID. It can't be COVID. It's not COVID. Didn't we already do that episode? <laughs> it's, it's not COVID. I'm talking oh, about thank God. climate change. Okay. Well, there is nothing more topical than that. Other than COVID. Uh, even in the age of COVID, that's still a dominant topic of conversation in pretty much every sphere, whether it's academic uh, the general media, political, then maybe not at the the water cooler. Those aren't really a thing at the moment, but uh, it is absolutely everywhere. Yeah, and it's already weaved its way into a bunch of our previous episodes. Um, whether we're talking about popular paleontology, no plan B, and the start of the environmental movement, recently talking with Liz about algal blooms. It's you know it's a omnipresent issue. That um, you know has a whole host of problems and issues and complications associated with it. Yeah, exactly. I, I I would imagine it's it's probably come up in almost every episode that we've talked about. Even the methodological ones, we're often talking about being able to infer climate change, and it's it's how could it not be? It it's this change to the environment that has so many different ways it can manifest, so many different compartments it can impact, all of the different changes that it can or have occurred and will continue to occur. So there's the, the potential to use all of the knowledge that's generated moving forward as well. Uh, it, it's absolutely everywhere. So maybe for the people that have been living under a rock, the paleolimnologist audience that has been living on a complete rock for the last 30, 40, 50 years. Um, let's do a real brief recap of what climate change is. Okay, there we go. All right. Good place to start. So um, really, this is very familiar territory for any of our, um, any of our regular listeners. Um, but really, the source of it all comes down to um, the release of carbon dioxide emissions into the atmosphere. Um, it's first recognized in 1958. Um, in an observatory in Hawaii and a famous graph that is now known as the Keeling, Keeling Curve, which shows basically an increase in the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere over time. Um, this is coming primarily from industrial uh, release, uh, basically burning things. And CO2 is basically acting as a insulating or increasing the CO2 um, is having an insulating effect on the earth, letting heat in, but not letting heat out. And the net result of this is the planet is getting warmer. And, you know, it's gone by, I guess the process has gone by a bunch of different names over the decades. I remember when I was young doing a science fair project on the greenhouse effect years and years ago, but that's not really a term that you uh, hear very much anymore. Um, no, it's really gone away a little bit. Yeah, it's like completely dropped off. Like if we pull up a Google Engram viewer, and it definitely is like a 80s, 90s kind of term that has fallen out of favor um, for global warming. And then uh, more recently, I guess, since the turn of the millennium, uh, like climate change. I'm not sure why that was, if there was a concerted rebranding or focusing that to highlight that. It's not just the heat that is the problem. It's all the consequences of the heat or mm -hmm. how that actually came to be. Yeah, I don't know. But but we, we've talked about this once once before. And I, I understand sort of the greenhouse effect switch because that's the process. It's still obviously linked to what's going on, but it doesn't really describe the effect and the change that's occurring. Yeah. And maybe the, the potential deleterious effect in particular and 
but then climate warming is obviously a little bit too specialized to some locations and some places like I, because there will that be sounds a variety good, depending on where you are potentially sure. whereas climate change is a little more ambiguous and ominous and um because this is a colossal problem um because there's a variety of positive feedback loops associated with it so there is certain tipping points or thresholds the idea that um you know as the ice around the North Pole, polar ice caps melt. Um, the water that is exposed or the ground that is exposed is darker than the snow and the ice, so it absorbs more. And so it just kind of like getting hotter makes it get hotter even fa faster would be one in one. Um, and, you know, it is the environmental issue of our times and is still very much the political issue of our times. Mm -hmm. Even and one of those things that you can just thinking about the I saw it in someone's Twitter uh, profile that I, I just clicked on today uh, the CO two emissions and how carefully those are tracked and people it's common for them to say oh I think it was Gre uh, Greta Thunberg uh, it says in her uh, bio on her Twitter page uh, what the concentration of CO two in the atmosphere was the year she was born. Um, and how quickly that's changed. And we've recently passed the point where there have never been humans on the earth when the CO2 concentration was as high or is was as high as it is currently in the atmosphere measured uh, in Hawaii. Uh, so it's a rapidly changing thing as well. We haven't sorted those out. So I just quickly looked it up while Adam was talking there. And Adam was born at 333 parts per million. That's Josh was born at 346 parts per million. And it's currently at 414. So you know, pretty, pretty rapid acceleration there. Yeah. And if you scale it back to like my parents, I were talking 30%, more than a 30% increase. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, so yeah, 300. So my dad was born in 1959. So 316 parts per million that year. So yeah. very rapid increase sort of over the, the, since the 1950s really. And yeah. And Going forward, um, there's a whole lot of nightmare scenarios associated with runaway uh, runaway warming and just basically increasing water scarcity, um, war, over water resources, famine, breakdown of the ocean conveyor in terms of thermal haline circulation and the ocean currents that we all depend upon. Basically, the arrival of the full horse from the apocalypse. It is a existential threat in many ways that at some point like will force the world's hand to deal deal with it or be dealt with really as terrifying that yep. is to contemplate i'm very concerned yeah and, and i think concern is is the right well we'll talk about this towards the end uh at the tail end of the discussion concern is probably the right uh emotion to if that's an emotion or response. Um, I don't know about dread necessarily, uh, but it, it's certainly something that needs to be, there's a, it's good that it's so commonly talked about in the media because it is really something that needs to be dealt with. And the more pressure, the better. And, um, you know, it's one of those things where the best time to have dealt with it would have been probably like 30, 40 years ago. Um, and like in the seventies, for example, when the, when it was, well, it had already been identified, but there was good evidence carried out by companies like Exxon, uh, oil and gas companies to show the impact that would be felt of emissions increasing in the atmosphere and modeling, excellent modeling that, you know, held up quite well considering it occurred 40 years ago, uh, that would have been a really good time to start to address it. Now it's going to be a little bit more yeah. challenging. Said it got filed away. And yeah, lost. I'm sure it was an accident. Um, all right. So now that I'm feeling particularly emotional, emotionally fragile, um, why should paleolimnologists care about climate change? Maybe, maybe that's something to talk about in the next segment. So really, 
what can paleolimnology contribute to climate change analyses and why should paleolimnologists, I guess, care more than Joe or Jane public about climate change, I guess, because the science as a whole um, is very much concerned with the past, whereas all these climate change concerns are about the future. Yeah, it's an interesting one because do, it's probably both in that the paleolimnologist listening should care maybe a little bit more because there's implications for the day-to-day -day activities of being a paleolimnologist, whether you're studying climate change specifically or not. It's an ever-present, as we've said, part of at least the recent past, but there's also long-term climatic changes that we know have occurred over much longer timescales. And so understanding climate is, is important, right? But also I think the general public should probably care what paleolimnologists have to say about climate change because of those same factors in that you do have to have maybe not an in-depth understanding of climate forcings or modeling that goes into the general circulation models that are used to predict future changes. No one's saying paleolimnologists are experts in that. But there is this contextual understanding of environmental change in the realm of, of atmospheric uh, temperature and and associated impacts. So that's my reason, I think. Yeah, no, I, I'm I'm on board with that reason. Um, and on, I'd add to that that you know one thing paleolimnologists look at a lot is potential recovery from various impacts and like a wide variety of environmental stressors. We've talked extensively, for example, last time about acid rain. Um, and one key thing to keep in mind in all sorts of like recovery analyses is that climate change is basically totally ensuring that a return to baseline conditions is effectively impossible on any meaningful timescale. Like the game is changing fundamentally. So yes, your pH may be going up, but a return to the ecology that was there 40, 50, 60 years ago, um, is likely not possible when you're dealing with sub significantly shorter winters, less ice cover, hotter summers. Basically, the conditions are different than what they well, would, would hope they would recover to. So, you know, what's going to establish itself as the new normal um, will be changed due to a uh, warmer climate. Yeah, there's a completely different state. Mm. Or, well, maybe not completely different, but significantly altered uh, limnological conditions to recover into, I guess, for lack of a better word. Um, so yeah, understanding climate and the potential effect on the ecosystem very broadly is essential for being able to put any change into the correct context and to be able to do any prediction at all, uh, as much as that can be possible in some of those cases. And then on top of that, even though lake sediments are not typically where you turn when you're looking for global information on past climate conditions, that's something more associated with like ice core analyses. I guess it depends. Yeah. Um, but really, um, a lot of uh, paleolimnological studies are where you're going to get more localized information um, or tease about regional variability. Yeah, I would say that if you're if you're looking for high resolution climatic uh, studies, you probably would wouldn't first go to a, a lake record. But now, if you want the longer term ones, the the deep lake sediments, particularly in the really large old uh, post uh, lakes that have spanned beyond the glacial, the most recent glacial, are are not bad indicators. So, like Lake Baikal, because there's no ice caps near to central. Eurasia um, that can be accessed for ice core records or the African Rift Lakes because there's no glaciers in Africa uh, are good uh, uses of lake sediments for pure paleoclimate type of reconstructions. Um, but at a global scale, those those would be the, the more unique ones, um, at, at least that I'm aware of. Yeah. And um Climate change, as we're going to, you know, repeatedly uh, keep coming back to, it's quite complicated, and there's a heavy need for localized information because up until 
very recently, you know, areas like the Hudson Bay lowlands were actively cooling due to just the way that I, I can't even put it into words properly, um, like global currents, air currents and stuff. Um, but it was like a, an, an anomaly where the world is rising in temperature, but temperatures were dropping in this particular region until the last, I don't know, decade or so. And so mm-hmm. individual lake records would allow you to tease apart that kind of variability going from region to region to region. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we always say the Arctic is warming, you know, 50% or 40 times faster than the global average. Well, that means that somewhere has to either be warming really slowly or cooling. Uh, and that's often one of the things that is brought up by you know, people who are denying climate change or questioning the science behind it or those kind of variable responses. But it perfectly fits with what we know about how climate changes from modeling. But in order to really track that, you do need to be able to tap into those local sources of archive data because models have to be uh, verified in order to to do the best job that they can. And having lake uh, records in all of these different locations, particularly in the more the more northern hemisphere, uh, the less arid locations, obviously, um, is is critical to being able to understand that variability, but also then to test those models. And so, you know, we've heard lots about climate forecasts, but one way to test the accuracy of those climate uh, models is to apply them backwards and perform a hindcast to see if um, it matches with what has been recorded in in the lake sediments over time in terms of climate signals. Um, There's also a role for vegetation studies using uh, lake sediments as one way to track changes in the range of various species. I think um, um, one, so it's not really a climate change in terms of the last couple of decades, but one of the first projects in paleo I was ever associated with was like uh, looking at the movement of a tree line in an alpine setting. And basically a lake was near the, um, current location in the tree line, but there'd been vegetation evidence through time of basically that tree line going up and down the mountain past lake. So at various times it was um, below the tree line and able to track that through the sediments and then doing that at a a larger scale um, can um, Mm -hmm. be quite valuable in terms of um, examining the change in range of various species, which would tie into future projections of what may happen going forward as temperatures become yeah. warmer. There's lots of examples of that from the uh, deglaciation and subsequent range expansion of all of the uh, vegetation communities in uh, areas that had uh, glacial uh, cover and also areas that didn't because even if there wasn't a big glacier covering some area, there was still colder conditions and climate envelopes have uh, moved north in the northern hemisphere and south in the southern hemisphere to accommodate that. And you can track that with uh, often pollen records Adam's talking about there uh, and some other biomarkers and things like that. But yeah, very common over long time scales. Some of the earliest paleo records that we talked about in, in our early history and when we were discussing pollen uh, analyses of post-glacial long sediment core records are still commonly you know, used as ways of tracking how vegetation communities did respond and how they might respond moving forward under similar types of climatic changes. But then there's always a question of how they'll respond in terms of the, the rate of temperature change, which is obviously much more accelerated in the modern warming than it was out of the deglaciation. So a really important role there to understand two kind of components of speed and also the uh, distance kind of component. Yeah. And because uh, the timing of a wide variety of impacts is totally related to in many ways to latitude and the variable onset of a variety of stressors. And so although we associate like climate warming, like again, really second half of the um, of the twentieth century. Um, the disappearing Arctic ponds that uh, John Small um, has been studying for decades now um, 
you know, they show climate impacts dating back to the early 1800s, which is, you know, pushing the line at the time earlier than anyone thought was uh, pushing it back uh, earlier than was, I guess, the widely held belief at the time. Yeah, certainly there might have been argument whether there was even a noticeable change in the atmosphere at that point, but that there were effects, that there were impacts on ecosystems uh, was not uh, a very popular or well, even widely held view at that time, not just amongst the general public, uh, but amongst scientists. There was a great deal of, I think John may have mentioned this uh, in his, the episode he was on, uh, and if not, certainly it comes up often enough in his in his talks that friends and colleagues didn't believe that in 19, whatever, 95, uh, when the very first science paper that they published on the, the ponds by Marianne Douglas, uh, and the response to, uh, a response to climate change in those ponds that th- there was quite a bit of pushback from people who are now, you know, staunch advocates of anthropogenic climate change and warming because there's been a lot more evidence now. Yeah. Like it ties into the whole, um, idea that some sort of global conspiracy of um, scientists all colluding to perpetuate climate change hoax is absolutely ridiculous um, because scientists are often the toughest people to convince. And so uh, when you have a general consensus there. um, He talks about this all the time. Yeah, Yeah. It's like, you know, in many ways, the professional skeptics. And, uh, you know, it's really hurting cats to get a bunch of scientists to do anything unless there's like free food, uh, (laughs) or a buffet line, you're never going to get everyone to, to follow the same path. Um, and yet there's such consensus on this topic. Well, it's just, we're getting to the point when it's, you know, at one, like the ability we're you know, the plausible deniability is long gone. It's like. Even in you know, my lifetime, like the difference between, you know, the amount of skating on ponds you could do here during March break, you know, now versus yeah. 30 years ago. Um, like it's, you know, eventually at oh, some yeah. point, you know, you get to the point where it's going to be a very tough time saying, you know, no, it's totally normal to have winters without any snow in the GTA. For sure. Or, you know, pick, pick an example of, of the things we talked about, like that, the, that 24 of the largest, uh, of the 25 largest wildfires in the history of California have occurred in the last three years. Those kind of numbers, I'm sure those numbers are wrong, but the, the sentiment is correct that all of the evidence is so significant. Yeah. That it's just part of the human experience now. It's like, it becomes a case of, um, you know, the idea of just pushing the narrative that everything's fine. Um, nothing's changing. Like it's always been like this is just, you know, we're kind of on the cusp of this being like, that is completely implausible. Even you don't need a scientist to, you know, it's like in everyone's living memory, um, becoming a thing. But one of the things that does get thrown out and maybe the last thing, uh, that, that, paleolimnology in particular can contribute to that and we've talked about it a little bit already is you know the thing that is most commonly probably still used in the climate denial sort of evidence with very very large air quotes on that word uh is the idea that there is this natural variability in in climate going back in time and this is just part of uh an ongoing cycle it's sunspots or it's whatever i don't think they they break out the like orbital forcings terminology all that often but it's just part of this natural cycle and the really nice thing about uh, having these long archives going back is that you can put those previous changes into the correct context so we can look at the response in the ecosystem or just infer the change in temperature uh, of the medieval warm period or the Holocene uh, climate optimum, the Little Ice Age when it was colder, colder, uh, and how that varied across d- 
different regions of the planet because it wasn't, you know, a, a, a consistent response for any of those uh, time periods globally. Uh, and therefore look at the way in which we can take a take natural variability out of the uh, equation and, and kind of come up with the excess that is anthropogenic. Yeah. And those long records um, really allow a detailed look at the rate of change to say, yes, you know, in various ways, temperature may have been higher, lower than today. But what, one of the big things that is very different is just the rate that things are changing in terms of its level of precedent or lack thereof in the long-term records. And climate change on its own is not necessarily, I guess, the th a thing that many paleomnologists study in isolation. I guess it really comes down to its role as but a threat multiplier, its interactions with a variety of other stressors, um, and how it can change everything. And, you know, in a nutshell, it is really complicated. Yeah, absolutely. As you would imagine, you know, there's climate is, is hard to teach, uh, just what's going on in, in, you know, even a few lectures that there are whole degrees obviously in climatology and people study it for their entire lives and trying to explain how temperature comes to be or how that influences precipitation or any of those linkages in climate just climate itself is quite complicated and then to imprint that onto the impact it's going to have on the landscape the uh, watershed the lake itself through its physical chemical and then all of the biological processes is just an enormous web of connections to try and begin to understand the linkages of yeah because basically it's a product of everything on the planet interacting together so picking a spot and saying we're going to start here because this is where this is the root point where everything emerges from is just not possible. Um, yeah, it's a butterfly effect kind of. Yeah. Um, and I guess one of the things that it's really interesting is the wrong word, um, but kind of really jumps out when you start looking at like a warming climate is that always seems to help out or exacerbate the problems you know, like we've talked about increased cyanobacterial blooms, disease-bearing mosquitoes expanding their ranges, higher number of devastating forest fires, stronger, more frequent hurricanes. It's never, you know, rainbows are becoming prettier as the temperature gets warmer or um, things like that. It's just, where's the upside? Just, there is no upside. Well, I mean, it may be relative. There, there may be some, but uh, but those are are probably dwarfed by the more negative things, and that kind of makes sense, right? Because it's basically throwing a wrench into a, a system that's not stable per se, but is is adapted to conditions changing quite slowly in the climate, uh, and anytime big rapid changes in environmental. Uh, conditions broadly happen, bad stuff tends to go down in the in the historical record. Uh, mass extinction events being an example of that. There are catastrophic changes when there's uh, impact with extra uh, terrestrial bodies. All of those kind of things tend to result in in bad stuff going on, and that's just really at least a big part of that is the rate. Yeah, yeah, because. Um you know, there's own in terms of like vegetation ranges, for example, there's only so far individual tree specimens can move in over the course of a particular generation. Um, and, but, and then different cycles that have may have been pre historically in sync, but prey species, um, responding at a different rate than predator species. Um, and it's just the complexity of the interactions um, just 
seems to come up again and again and again. So we've talked, for example, about eutrophication and um, how, you know, there's lots of efforts to reduce the amount of nutrients going into fresh waters um, in order to control algal blooms. But then you have, okay, but now the water is is water for, uh, is warmer for a longer period of the summer. Um, it's ice-free for a longer period of the year. So your algal blooms are potentially happening at lower nutrient concentrations than they would have several decades ago. Um, we talked about uh, the sensitivity of some aquatic invertebrates to reduce calcium in the water associated with acid rain. Um, and then all of a sudden increased temperatures and higher metabolic rates in terms of uh, increased water temperatures potentially increases the sensitivity so that all of a sudden your calcium threshold might move higher in some cases as uh, the water temperature goes on. Um, yeah. We talked about storm surges and how storms that would have occurred in, in the fall normally, it's not that the Arctic Ocean, well, I think from a, a northern perspective, isn't stormy. Uh, at times, it obviously can get really whipped up. But because there's less sea ice, because sea level has increased even very slightly in a low-lying ecosystem, those result in storms being able to impact the coastal areas much more significantly than they might have uh, if there was a, a, this cover of ice on top of the ocean to keep the storms from getting kind of out of hand, as it were. There's lots of uh, synergisms, syner synergisms, yeah, that link these together. Uh, we, we, I don't think we've really talked too, too much about oxygen concentrations, uh, specifically maybe from a method perspective, but not from a, uh, a environmental impact perspective, but the potential for warming conditions to alter and increase the potential for deep water uh, oxygen depletion, so anoxia or hypoxia, has huge implications for fish communities. Yeah. So for anyone that's not familiar with that, basically in uh, diamectic lakes um, where you have a temperature separation in the summer with like the warmer water not mixing with the deeper colder water. Um, Basically, that is a barrier, um, uh, presents a barrier between the bottom waters and the air, so they're not getting fresh oxygen. Um, so whatever was in there when you had your initial spring turnover um, has to last through the whole summer. As the summer gets longer, um, you run into situations where um, the oxygen condition is depleted before the fall turnover occurs. And again, that time ties into various habitat ranges, but then all of a sudden you're running in situations where cold water fish that spend their summers down in the bottom cold waters um, basically uh, are forced more often into the um, warmer waters where they do not like to be in order to feed simply because there's no oxygen down there. Um, so that's just another like, you know, the knock-on effect of warmer temperatures impacting ranges because it's actually impacting um, physical changes within the habitat. Yeah, we could go on and on with this list for quite a long time. We talked about permafrost on all of these kind of geomorphic disturbances. They're natural in the ecosystem, in the environment. They happen, but they're bigger. They're faster. They're resulting in slightly different impacts to the actual receiving bodies and the ecosystems that they're impacting. Uh, and so that is something that, you know, maybe one of these would occur every 30 or 40 years. I care a little bit. And now they're occurring. They're super familiar yeah. with like a, you know, a slump. But I remember even, you know, talking to you about your project. Like, I mean, I I'm have spent no time up north. I, I was blown away by the scale of like watersheds falling into the lake that I think uh, most people think we'll have to put some photos up um, and just get yeah, the sense. Yeah, for sure. It's true. You do kind of take for granted that you've seen these things. So a, a slump just generally is, it's like a kind of landslide to use a colloquial term. It's where the, the surface material detaches and, and rides along something that's below it. And slumps are sort of a rotational, uh, rotational type of slide. So they look like these C-shaped or, or curved convex uh, scars that form on the side of lakes and rivers and the ocean 
they're really common in the Arctic Ocean, and you see them often if you see a picture of permafrost on the Arctic. It's from the Tuktoyaktik coastlands where these slumps occur, and they can be massive. I've you know landed, been on a helicopter that's landed inside of them and and had plenty of space. Uh, the pieces of material that are falling from the slide, the landslide, can be the size of school buses moving down uh, the the slurry into the bottom of them. And they're, they're among the most catastrophic and conspicuous forms of permafrost thaw. And they are occurring faster and they're bigger and they're occurring in areas where they didn't uh, very recently. And, and we know something about why that's occurring after quite a few years of research. And it's definitely a, a linkage to, to the rapid climate change. Yeah. No, it's definitely a very conspicuous visual image. Like it's pretty hard to visualize what, you know, increased hypoxia in the bottom of a lake, you know, looks like it's like a more, at least to us, uh, theoretical kind of issue, but, a a, a massive thaw slump, um, is a little bit more, Oh, you know, yeah, it, it's kind of the thing that you see on magazines and that kind of uh, visual manifestation of climate change. Look, it's up there with like the melting glaciers with the sticks of like the recession of like, you know, this is where it was in 1992. This is where it was in 1993 and so on. And now it's gone and those kind of things like the Athabasca Glacier and in, in uh, the Columbia field. Uh, in Canada, but there are examples all over. And that's only talking about environmental ills. There's a whole suite of social ills associated with these changes. Um, and basically in the same vein as it um, exacerbating the problems, it's like takes the most serious humanitarian issues in the world uh, and, and amplifies them, whether that's hunger, poverty, lack of access to clean water, and, you know, coming... Um, climate refugee crises like i'm totally depressing myself here i don't know if i want to put anything else on this list of crappy things yeah there probably are some oh there are lots <laughs> there are lots <laughs> but um yeah the you can't hide from them they certainly are there and, and the more people come to realize that then the more potential there is to start to make some changes that can actually uh, benefit. So is it possible to end the show on a more hopeful note or are we just having our, you know, are we the baddies moment? Uh, I don't know. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I think there's maybe a little too much emphasis put on either being hopeful or being completely broken by the state of things. I think, I think a, a really healthy dose of realism is, is the best way to understand all of these things because yeah, the, it, some of those things are really bleak and they will be bleak. And, uh, that's the, the nature of it, but also I was say, I at know, what I, point I does realism become nihilism? Well, <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Uh, yeah, because you can be hopeful and you can uh, consider all of the little things that you can do individually to improve your ecological footprint, for lack of a better word, and, and do all of those things. But that only will take us so far. And being completely broken and doing nothing is is not going to solve the problem either. I think you just the, the key is to to put forward some potential solutions and, uh, and a way of moving forward. Yeah. I think, you know, as depressing as it all is, um, you know, there's no point being ashamed of the world that you were born into. You, you know, we did not directly, you know, the problem was all, all, all like I will eventually have this conversation with my kids. It's like the world was already on this path on the day you were born. Um, and it's not your fault. Um, but, uh, you know, you can help out on some level and be mindful of what needs to be done. Absolutely. And then the other thing is that, you know, we've been born into the most privileged uh, location uh, and time that you could ever be a, a human being, being a, a couple of white men in you know, Canada 
and uh, born at this time period. And the other thing that I think is is probably, you know, we we look at it from this this perspective, and the uh, kind of sadness or just being completely broken by climate change is something that is I'm pretty sure very uh, or, or very much localized to that kind of perspective because there's the potential for the loss of things that you know we're we're familiar with and we've known. If you go to other parts of the world, that that's just the reality of the world that is existing now and and will exist into the future. And in those locations then, you know, realistic, uh, actionable things to do at a global scale are the key and and what need to be pushed. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I guess there's some, I guess part of the reason we are where we are is it's not really a problem that can be solved at the grassroots level. Um, no. You know, we are now, and we live in a world where I think just recently in the last week, two weeks, something like that, you know, some, I remember seeing some stories about how now, uh, you know, the top 1% of Canada is in full control of 30% of all the wealth in Canada. Um, sure. And, uh, you know, it's like, there needs to be top-down movements because there's only so much that on an individual level that all of us switching to canvas bags over plastic bags and composting our tea bags and this, that, and the other is going to impact the world. It needs to be, you know, an electrification of the transportation network and thing, things like that. Uh, and everything like that, you know, there has to be so many, it has to be done at, at every level, but by not, not entirely, but led at a very high level. Uh, it's a few years out of date, but the fact that 100 companies produce more than 70% of the global carbon dioxide emissions, and every single one of them, or, or maybe save one of them, is an oil, gas, or coal uh, corporation, is, you know, that's the entire problem right there in some ways. Uh, and ha over the, at least the recent past, if we could deal with that alone, would be a really good start. And no individual is going to do that. These are the largest corporations on the planet. Some of them are state corporations, which is another problem. Uh, and so I, I read a, a good blog the other day that, that someone who was an environmental scientist broadly and a climate communicator, people tend to uh, confess their sins to her, I believe. Uh, they would say, come up and say, oh, you know, I'm not very good at recycling or doing any of those things. And her answer was, I don't actually care. And she said it with a few more expletives in her blog, but I don't actually care if you recycle. What you need to do is pressure government to make meaningful uh, goals and, and make it expensive and difficult to pollute uh, and put money and energy into the solutions that we know right now will fix the problem. So yeah, that that's, I think the, the key and, and, you know, even people who are held up, uh, this will be my last comment before I, I stop, uh, <laughs> uh, going on Rant about away. this, but Rant away. very recent, very recently, just in the last couple of days, and it's the 29th of April today, it'll be a little later than that, but Bill Gates, uh, was, I don't know if it was a, a talk he gave or a tweet he sent or whatever it was, but the idea that, you know, we don't, you know, we won't be able to implement technologies to solve the climate climate crisis that, that we have now. We need to basically come up with new technologies in order to um, be able to solve this problem because currently, you know, the technologies are more expensive than oil, gas, and it's a, a, a monetary thing. And, and that's true. But that's because we subsidize oil and gas in large part so much compared to some of these other technologies. And a lot of the uh, response to that by people who are, you know, excellent climate scientists and communicators is like, you need to get out of the way because those kind of ideas by the richest people on the planet are the ones that are holding us back from actually fixing the problems because we give so much money at a government level to these corporations that are... Uh, polluting the atmosphere. And yes, obviously there's an economic component and it's not an easy transition, but if we can figure out a way to take that and move it to things that are 
improving or at least not harming uh, the planet around us, we will be able to make some very significant goal or significant uh, improvements in our outlook. And and it's not like we'll never, you know, there'll be no warming, but to, to slow that to one that is not going to be those catastrophic kind of changes, we just need the political will for that to happen. And I wonder, you know, as we continue talking about this relatively bleak topic, although bleak, bleak's not the right word because bleak's usually associated with cold. So this unbleak topic, <laughs> um, you know, I wonder how close we are to a tipping point. Like, I don't know how, um, I don't know if our next vehicle will be an electric vehicle, but it's, it feels like. Oh, mine will, for sure. We're, we're, uh, for sure. We're, it's on the cusp of that. And then, you know, I always remember um, John showing like uh, two pictures of New York City. And I think it's like 1901 and 1903. Um, and in the 1901 picture, there are. You know, I don't know what street it's on, but there's something like, you know, if you start counting them, there's like 70 horse and carriages. And if you look closely, you might see two cars. And then two years later, it's the reverse. Like, yeah, this is the whole, you know, threshold and tipping points. And then all of a sudden, when the car was readily available and boom, everyone had a car because, you know, it was just the way it was just this, this, the economic choice at the time. And, yeah. you know, well, I hope so. once the electrified pickup trucks show up, like, I mean, that's going to be a big deal. They, they already exist. You know, they're just not made by the the big, big three automakers in North America. But that's, that's going to change. You know, General Motors has said that, you know, in the next five years or whatever, they'll have 25 different models that are fully electrified. And not to, not to give them a pass, you know, they have fought climate regulations for years and have taken so much money and fought the science of, of climate change as well. But now, whatever is different, is it a, uh, from a public's perspective that people want electric vehicles? Is it from a, a perspective of the government putting um, sort of uh, incentives to have people purchasing? I don't know exactly. It's probably a I think combination it's probably of them, all but there is a together. state change. Because yeah. you're definitely seeing on some level like the renewable energy sources, like they're reaching, um, you often see stories of like how close to parity they're getting, even with all, all the, the subsidies involved. I'm just, uh, you know, so now in terms of a electric vehicle, I guess it's like more money up front, but over the long haul, you will definitely save money. Sure. And not to say that's perfect. There's there's battery concerns and and where we get these rare earth metals and all those sorts of things. But that's just one example at a, a, a generation pers- uh, like a power generation perspective. Solar and wind technology is becoming so inexpensive, less so than than new large capital projects in sort of microgrid perspectives. California today or yesterday generated ninety five percent of their electricity from renewable sources for the first time ever for a short duration but like that's that's huge california is the equivalent of of or has a higher uh economic output than more than half the countries on the planet the potential is there and and i i agree i think we are at that point i saw a bit of uh, president biden's speech from after his 100 days which was yesterday uh and and it's hard not to be a little bit more hopeful than than I might have been five, ten, even years ago, because of the the push towards these kind of uh, changes that are occurring, not just from one person in in a very important per, uh, seat to to make those changes, but much more broadly than that. Yeah, like I mean, um, yeah, if you think back to when was it? Al Gore's movie came out. Is that 2005? Yeah, something like that. So yeah, so 15 years ago, there still was the, the, I guess the pivotal question was, you know, trying to convince the public this is a problem. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that was about pushing science. Yeah, that was pushing the science. We're past that step now. And we're now in the potential solutions realm, I guess. And some of them still seem far away, but it's more of a case of, um, you know, there's a there's a, a sea change between those two points of like trying to convince the public <clears throat> that there is a problem versus trying to convince the public of what is the best solution to the problem, I guess, is more in the mm -hmm. realm of where we are now. Yeah. yeah so for, for that, for based on all of that, I am a little bit hopeful. Uh, it will not be an easy road. Um, but it seems like there is uh, a push towards it. All right. So I guess on that less unbleak note, Less unbleak. Yep, makes sense. <laughs> um, that's probably a good place to stop. And um, oh, and and not only that, I think that's end uh, end this um, arc. Is it not? I think we were going to finish topical paleolimnology with the most topical of topics, and, uh, and move on to something yeah, else. Yeah, so we need to start thinking hard um, about uh, what that next arc will be. And yeah, we do get back to basics a little bit. Yeah, why not? It sounds like jump a good back plan. into fundamentals on some level and go from the very forty thousand foot view to the uh, the microscopic one again, perhaps. That's right, forty microns. <laughs> all right. So once again, thanks for listening to Core Ideas, the podcast dedicated to all things paleolimnology. If you'd like to reach out to us with a question or a comment or a suggestion for our next arc, please send us an email to coreideaspodcast at gmail.com. Or you can contact us through Twitter at coreideaspaleo. Only one A in paleo. All our past episodes and uh, the corresponding show notes slash blog posts can be found at our website, uh, coreideas.ajesiorski.ca, but just find the link on our Twitter page. And uh, I think I'm only like two months um, behind schedule on there. And if you're so inclined, you can give us a rating or you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, those five-star ratings would be great, but to be honest, we don't care all that much. We're really just doing this for fun. And that's it for now. Uh, but join us again next time as we continue to explore paleolimnology in the knowledge economy era, sticking to our ethos of pure knowledge without the economy. Hashtag knowledge economy.